I got here this morning, and I suddenly realized I had forgotten to take my pills. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went back home. I have one of those pill caddies. You got the, the, how many of you own a pill caddy? I am old enough to own a pill caddy now. And it's got every day of the week. And then mine's big enough I have to have you know, AM and PM on mine. Do you have the AM and PM? Yeah, I've graduated to that one. When I first started taking my blood pressure medicine, I thought, I don't need one of those. And a couple days later, I'm buying one of those things because I can't remember and you can't go back and count. Anyways, I'm, I'm filling the pill caddy the other day. And on the side of my pill bottle, there's a warning, you know, there's a warning label on the pill bottle. And I, I thought, well, it's medicine. I guess I understand that. But, you know, we, those warning labels have become so familiar, we don't even notice them anymore. We used to, we used to complain, and we, we still complain, you know, in the old days, we didn't have warning labels on everything, and we survived just fine, you know, most of us, you know, we, we made it just fine. And one thing I stop and realize is that behind every warning label, there's a story, a really dumb story, where somebody did something that they should not have done, and, and so a warning label was created. There was a contest a while back for the dumbest warning labels. Um, one of them was on a label on, on medication from a vet. Okay, it's from a vet. It's for a dog. And it said, do not operate heavy machinery after taking this. Like, I don't know what you're making your dog do, you know. Even the dog drives you home at night. I don't know. But that was strange. There was a warning label on a stroller, a baby stroller, one of those fold-up kinds that said, warning, remove child before folding. And that, well, that's just common sense. I mean, everybody should know that. There was one on a fishing lure, packaging of a fishing lure, you know, treble hooks and everything. And the warning on the fishing lure said, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> I just wanted to try it out. It was so appealing. It just was so... Now, I, I understand this one. There, there's a warning on your packaging that comes with your Dremel tool. If you have a Dremel, one of those rotary tools, the warning says not intended for use as a dental drill. And, and I think that's just something I grew up with, that you do your own dentistry at home, you know. And By the way, I have to go see a dentist later this week, so yeah, I understand that. But one of, my, one of my favorites was a warning label on a tractor, and the warning simply said, danger, avoid death. Uh, well, that makes sense, you know, that, that was great. But behind every one of those warning labels, someone, there's a story of someone who misused the product, someone who was hurt or killed, and the manufacturer said, well, we've got to put a label on it to make sure this doesn't happen again. The problem is, human nature being what it is, we'll just make bigger mistakes next time. We'll make worse mistakes next time, and so we'll need more warning labels, bigger labels. 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says these things, he's talking about things that happened in the Old Testament. He said these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. They are, they are warning labels. And later on in that chapter, verses 11 and 12, he says, now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so from the very beginning, much of this book is a warning label. Danger, avoid death. And that's exactly what the story we're going to look at today is. You're going to find it in Leviticus chapter 10. 
Uh, we're going to look at Leviticus 9 as well, a little bit of 9, but Leviticus chapter 10, those Bibles in the pews, it's page 88, you can't miss it. If you're starting in Genesis, then you go to Exodus, and Leviticus is next. And it is a giant warning sign for those who would approach God. It is a warning, danger, avoid death. And yet, despite the, the danger, we want to approach Him. That's why we're here today, so that we can approach God, so we can draw near to Him, so we can be in His presence. And so the warning isn't for us to stay away. The warning is to recognize Him and to know Him as He truly is and to show Him the reverence and respect that He is due. It's a very important lesson. We dare not approach God without recognizing His holiness. And so the story begins, the story really begins in chapter 9 of, Le, of Leviticus. And what we see there is something that, that many of us have felt at one time or another, and that is that there is joy and excitement in the presence of God. Now, Leviticus is one of those books in the Old Testament that we tend to ignore. In fact, I went back over my files to see how many sermons I have preached out of the book of Leviticus. This is it. <laughs> 30 years almost of doing this. This is it. The first one out of Leviticus. And if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, maybe you're doing that now. You know, we make those New Year's resolutions. I'm, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. You know, we start off in Genesis, and we make it through Genesis, and that was great. You know, there's a lot of wonderful stories. There's the flood and the, you know, the ark, and then there's Joseph and all that in Genesis. Then we get to Exodus, and that's exciting. We got plagues. We got fire from heaven. We got all kinds of great stuff, you know. Then you get to Leviticus, and it will just suck the life out of you right there. You know, if, you're, if your Bible reading quits anywhere, it is going to be... Leviticus. Leviticus is a killer. Leviticus is a manual. It is a, it's a how-to uh, for priests. It, it's kind of like uh, priesthood for dummies. You know, that's, that's Leviticus is what that is. So they, they built the tabernacle. They built this tent that would serve as the temple while they were traveling. So they had prepared a place to meet God, but now they had to prepare themselves. And so the lessons that we learn in this book are for those who need to approach God. There are lessons for those who are going to approach God, who are going to minister in His presence. The main point of Leviticus, if, you ever, if anyone ever asks you, what's the main point of Leviticus? Uh, it is found in chapter 19, verse 2, where God says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's a hard lesson. That's tough, because we... we it's one we really struggle with. We, t we like to talk about God's grace. We like to talk about a, we have a gracious God. You know, We have a loving God. We have a kind and compassionate and, and merciful God. And we come to worship and you know, we kind of lose ourselves in those songs that speak of His, of his grace and his, his mercy. We draw near to His holiness. We draw near like a, like a moth to the flame. And, and like a moth to the flame, we, we can get burned in the presence of of God. And that's what happens here. So back in, back in chapter 9, just a few verses earlier, Moses' brother, Aaron, has, uh, he's the high priest, and Aaron is making the offering on the altar, and, and they've, they've presented God exactly what he's asked for. They're giving him the exact offering that, they ask, that God has asked for, and God's response is to show up in an amazing way. If you look at Leviticus 9, verses 22 through 24, it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meetings, and when they had came out, they blessed the people, 
And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now there's, there's a couple of things here that, that are happening that I, I want you to, to really understand. I want you to really catch this. First of all, there's this amazing miraculous manifestation of the presence of God. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've seen. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not something you see just every day. You know, this fire comes down, it's spontaneous combustion, whoosh, you know, and the, 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 the offering is taken. God showed his his acceptance to them. I, I don't want you to miss this. They were accepted by God. Their offering was accepted by God. He showed up to accept their sacrifice just as he had promised. He promised to be with them, and he was. Every now and then, we have one of those mountaintop experiences in our lives. You know, we have one of those experiences that where, where we feel the presence of God in, in an amazing way. We feel it deeply. We we get very excited, you know. When I was a kid growing up here, uh, every year, you guys would send me to camp. It was a good way to get rid of me for a week, I think, you know. And, and so my parents, they really appreciate you sending me to camp every year. We'd go to camp, you know, we'd be there for a, for a solid week and no TV, you know, no, no music from outside, no nothing, you know, it was all just camp and reading our Bibles. And, and we'd get excited, we'd sing new songs, we'd We'd sing songs and jump around and clap our hands and, and raise our arms, you know, and it was, it was just an amazing and wonderful time. And then, and then we'd come home. <laughs> Saturday afternoons, we'd come home, and we'd come to church the next morning. I'm sorry, but it was boring. <laughs> we didn't sing the fun songs. We didn't raise our hands and clap and jump around. If we did, you, you looked at us like there's something wrong with us. It, it just, you know, where's the excitement? You know, we, we'd come back and say, why can't it be like camp all the time? You think you'd learn after a while, but we grew up and we went to Promise Keepers. <laughs> right, guys? Y'all go to Promise Keepers? We went to Promise Keepers and we'd get away for two days and we'd, we'd sing these songs and we'd stand up and we'd yell and we'd shout and, and we'd clap our hands and raise our arms. We'd have a great time. We'd come back to church after Promise Keepers and and guys, we, we would try desperately to hold on to that excitement, but it would fade. And the, the lessons that we learned was that mountaintop experiences are great, but you don't live on the mountaintop. You can't live there, and if you try to fake it, it just hurts all that much worse. It, it, it just feels so much worse. We are going to get to chapter 10 here. We have no idea how much time passed between Leviticus 9 and Leviticus 10. But it was enough time for the fire to go out, both figuratively and literally. The excitement was gone by chapter 10. And so two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were also serving as priests, they took matters into their own hands. They decided to light their own fire. It is a very short story, and their lives are very short. We never will really understand their motives. We'll never really understand their state of mind. But what we need to understand is God's response. Verse, 
1 of chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. Some of your Bibles say strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So if this is an example, if this is a, an example for us, as Paul says it was written down as an example, what is the lesson for us? What does the big warning sign really teach us? And I think... It teaches us that while there is joy and excitement in the presence of God, we dare not approach Him without recognizing His holiness. Now, in the aftermath of, of this incident, policies changed. You know, they, they put warning signs on things, and, and policies changed about how we approach God because they wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. And if you look down in verse 10, God says, you are to distinguish, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. See, without that appreciation, without that understanding of the holiness of God, that he is different from us, our faith loses its meaning. Our faith loses its power. It loses its power over our screw-ups. It loses its power over our sin. It loses power over our mistakes and our failures. It loses power to change us. God stops being someone that we fear and, and we respect. He stops being someone who when we look to him, we recognize our lack. We recognize what we need. And it's not that I want you to walk around constantly cowering in, in fear of God, but we have to understand that the fear of the Lord is something real. We need to understand that. We need to understand what it means to respect him and we need to recognize God is not our, our coffee-drinking buddy. It, do you have a coffee-drinking buddy? I got a coffee-drinking buddy. I, I got to spend a little time with my coffee-drinking buddy up in Urbana this past week and had to spend the night at, at his house. And Everybody should have a coffee-drinking buddy. And if you don't drink coffee, it's just cheaper. You know, Just, just get together with somebody. And I had a great time with my coffee-drinking buddy. I hadn't seen him in months. And we talked together. We, we laughed we complained a little bit. He's a preacher too. We had the same kind of complaints. <laughs> we complained a little bit and grumbled. And, and then we offered suggestions to each other about our, our struggles. I, I love my coffee drinking buddy. But as much as I love him, I am not beholden to him the way I am beholden to God. Right? You understand that? My coffee drinking buddy is just like me. We have the same job. We have the same worries, we have the same fears, we have the same joys. There is nothing other or above me about him. When we lose that sense of God's otherness, his majesty, his, his holiness, we, we lose who he truly is. John the Baptist in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, if anybody could have had Jesus 
as a coffee-drinking buddy, I think it would have been John. They were cousins, probably growing up together. They, they knew each other. They had the same job, kind of. You can't miss the warning that, that John gives us about his cousin. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You will not be the same after you encounter him. And there is a very good chance that you're going to get burned. You know, we, we read these Old Testament stories and we want to think, yeah, but that was then. You know, that was a long time ago, Brett, and God is a lot cooler now. I mean, you know, not, once he finally had a kid, he kind of calmed down a little bit, right? You know, God's a lot cooler than he used to be. And, and Jesus is pretty cool about sin. I mean, he welcomed sinners and he forgave them and, and he understands my failings. We, we've got to walk a balance. We've got to walk a very tight balance between grace and truth. Hanging on to, to both of those sides. It is in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that we read, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's something that didn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. God was a, a consuming fire in chapter 9 when He consumed the offering that they placed on the altar. He was a consuming fire in chapter 10 when He consumed Nadab and Abihu. Our God is a consuming fire. The only question that we really need to have is what will He consume? What is there of us that God is going to consume? I think there were three mistakes made there in verses 1 through 3, and, and I think they're mistakes that we continue to make. If you look at verse 1, look at it again. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and authored, uh, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. He had not commanded them. And if you go back and look at chapter 9, five times, in chapter 9, it says God commanded them to do this. They were commanded to do this. They were commanded to do that. It stands in contrast to chapter 9. That's the sin of presumption. That says, I'm going to come to God in my own terms. I'm going to come to God my own way, on my own time. I'm going to do what I want, and God will accept me because I'm just special, and He will like that I come to Him. That's not obedience. And it's not like God makes it hard on us. First, First John 5.3 says His commands are not burdensome. They're not a burden. He calls us to love Him. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to, to obedience. He simply wants us to recognize He is in charge. He is Lord. He wants us to obey Him. The second mistake is, is there in verse 3 where it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who, come, who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be sanctified. That means I will be holy. You know, we, we, sing, we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It means holy is your name. You are pure. You are sinless. You are above us. You are righteous. He is other. And, and to treat God as anything less is to deny his power in our lives. If God is not holy, he can't help us. He can't change us. If you you look on down in verses 8 and 9, again, part of the, 
part of the policy change that had to happen. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meetings, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. The assumptions always been made about Nadab and Abihu is that they were drunk when they, uh, when they came in. That, that sounds like a, a decent assumption, but the assumption's always been that they were drunk when they came into the tent of meetings. And so this particular story was, you know, the prohibitionists, your Billy Sundays, and, and other preachers of the first part of the, of the 20th century, they, they loved this, this text. They preached lots of sermons out of this one, talking about demon rum. And, but that, that, that's a short-sighted point. It's not about not about drinking it's about your attitude when you approach God do you do you approach him like he's common do you approach him like he's your beer drinking butt <laughs> do you approach him as though he's he's common or do you approach him with holiness do you approach him recognizing his holiness do you, do you approach him with respect the third mistake that takes place there in verse 3 he goes on, he says, Among those who approach me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, all the people, I will be glorified. You see, the attitude of the priests, the attitude of the priests, Nadab and Abihu, their attitude affected all the people. The attitude of those that approached God affected all the people. All of them, even those that didn't worship but, but they watched. You know, they may not have been there for worship at the tabernacle, but they saw what was going on. They paid attention to what was happening. They saw the priests. Don't think for a minute people aren't watching us. Don't think for a minute they're not listening to us. Don't think for a minute they don't hear the things that we say, the things that come out of our heart, the things that come out of our mouths, the attitudes that are not holy sometimes. When our lives lack reverence for God, when we lack an acknowledgement of His holiness, they notice. And the problem isn't just that they're not fooled. The problem isn't just that, that they're not impressed. The problem is that God is not glorified. They, they don't have anything but us. They, they have us to, to go and, and to show them what, what it means to have faith, what it means to be a believer. When our attitudes and our actions don't speak to that, God is not glorified in them. And ultimately, our goal is that they would glorify God, that God would be glorified. And that, that doesn't just happen through the music that we sing. It doesn't just happen through the things that we do here. It happens in the way we live, the way we honor Him. You know, when, when Jesus came, one of, the, one of the things that happened you know, the, at the cross, the, the, the veil was torn in the temple. And there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies where the priests would go from, from everybody else. And when that veil was, was torn, it was a symbol that the way had been opened for all of us to approach God, that we no longer needed a priest who would go and make sacrifices for us. Jesus became our mediator, and, and therefore, in a very real way, if you are a believer, you are a priest of God because God places His Holy Spirit in you, just as the Spirit used to, used to be in the temple. His Holy Spirit is in you, uh, and, and you are allowed to approach Him. We are the priests. We are always in God's presence. So, so how should we live? Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, God's special possession. You are God's special possession. That ought to make you feel really good. 
that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he goes on. So what, how should we live if this is true of us? He says, dear friends, I urge you as, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. And then he says, live such good lives among the pagans, among the non-believers, among those who aren't among us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our God is a consuming fire. The offering that was made in obedience with with reverence in chapter 9, that was consumed. In chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu act out of presumption and act in their sin. They were consumed. The question for us is not, will he consume? The question is, what will he consume? If you approach him without reverence, without holiness, you you will get burned. You will be humbled. You will be reduced, whether you like it or not. But maybe the question for us is this. Maybe what we need to ask is, what do we need for him to consume? What do we want him to consume of us? Is there anything of who you are? Is there anything in you that you know does not glorify God? Maybe it's, maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's, maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's some hurt feelings. Maybe it's even some hate. Maybe it's some sin. Is there anything that's keeping Him from being glorified in who you are and in what you do? Then, then maybe what we need to do is lay that before Him as our offering, and, and let him consume that. And just simply say, God, I, I'm a failure. I can't do this on my own. There's so many times I just fail you. And, and just offer him your failures. Offer him your hurts. Offer him those things that you're carrying that, that just weigh you down. Let him burn those things off. and Let him purify you and make you whole. We've got some, some beautiful songs sing today and I love hearing you guys sing you guys do a do a wonderful job but before we come to him and sing we have to acknowledge his holiness we have to acknowledge that he is above us more than just the songs that we sing more than just the words that that put him in the place where he belongs that put him in a place of holiness and and majesty and reverence in our lives to where He's glorified. We need to offer Him this time to prepare our hearts for what we're bringing to His table. The attitudes that we're carrying, the the sins that we're carrying, the hurts that we're carrying. We're going to meet Him at this table. And So my prayer for you is that you just, in the time that we spend preparing, let Him consume you. It sounds frightening. It sounds horrifying our God is a consuming fire that ought to scare you but it also ought to fill you with wonder because my guess is not only are you carrying hurts that you've been carrying for a long time 
but at one time or another, you thought you laid the whole hurt down. And it showed back up again. Maybe just a tiny little piece of it showed up again. You're like, I thought I got rid of this. He's a consuming fire. When he is done with you, there will be nothing left of that stuff that keeps you from him. That's a wonderful thought. We get to meet him as we sing, as we offer our hearts, as we offer our lives, as we offer, as we offer ourselves together and come to this table.